If you will, open your Bibles to Mark 14. We'll conclude the, this morning with a, a brief reflection out of Mark. We're going to be in the end of the book of Mark, uh, now all the way through uh, Resurrection Day. And we're calling this uh, series The Hour because that's a phrase that uh, Jesus is going to use. He's going to refer to this period of his life as The Hour. And um, it's, it's not as though he's talking about an actual moment in time. The hour for Jesus is going to take uh, 12 or 15 hours, if you want to be technical about it. It means the reason for him coming or the purpose for why he came. We, we use this sort of um, idiom in our, in our own talk. Someone might say, I've been waiting for this day all my life. Right? And we, we know that they're not talking literally about that day necessarily. They're saying that whatever's happening is very important. Um, an athlete might say after a great championship, like, this is what it's all about. That's sort of what the hour is encompassing. And we're going to walk slowly through the hour of our Lord Jesus. So each Sunday between now and Easter is going to be um, these expressions on the way up and through the cross, which, by the way, is uh, is going to make for a fairly intense time in the Word. I'm just saying none of these are fun. I mean, it's next Sunday, uh, John Lynn will be preaching about the Sanhedrin and then Pilate and then uh, the crucifixion. It's, um, uh, and all of these, right, all of these comprise the hour. The hour. I, I think of it a little bit like, you know, the Super Bowl is the hour for football. If you play professional football, that's why, that's the reason, is to get to the Super Bowl. And the Super Bowl is technically exactly one hour. It's four 15-minute quarters. But it never takes an hour, does it? Because, I mean, so this hour is actually, we stretch it out and we focus on it. It takes... If you're really excited, if it's your team, like the week before you're interested, but then there's pregame and there's, you know, you know, as much as like commercials, halftime, we make a big, big deal about the hour. Um, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to begin that. And we're going to begin that with um, a look at the Garden of Gethsemane, which is in Mark 14, verse 32. So one last note before uh, we, we begin to read. I find this passage to be uncomfortably deep, meaning there are things that I, I, I gaze into the Garden of Gethsemane every time, even, even after having preached at 9 a.m. I gaze in and I come away knowing there's things I don't know or there's places I can't go. And... Uh, I don't have a desire to try to put a cork on that or solve that. I, I actually think, uh, you, you know, even in human relationships, the times where we 
uh, confront the deep expression of someone else. Those are very honorable moments. This is being, this side of the Lord is being shared with us. I feel like we're being honored to see this side of the Lord. And I kind of, my eyes are wide open. In fact, I, you know, it's not a long text, but I went to a lot of books to prepare for this, thinking maybe they can tell me, maybe they can solve my mystery here and my mystery there. And book after book, it was like biblical scholar, just eyes wide open. I'm not quite sure how to handle all of this. So instead of uh, a more direct teaching this morning, it's gonna be a little bit more of a, uh, a, a wondering reflection. And um, I, I think you'll, you'll know why. Here's a little summary to help you know where the garden takes place. Uh, Jesus has entered the city of Jerusalem triumphantly. So Palm Sunday has already happened. The city welcomed him in as Messiah. Uh, and then things start to change a little bit. A lot of conflict arises uh, or comes to a head. Uh, the Last Supper has taken place earlier this evening in the story. Uh, Judas, the betrayer of our Lord, has left, has been indwelt by Satan, and has betrayed so that even now, you might say, he's actively working to bring people to arrest the Lord. <clears throat> In- interestingly, it's just a... a something worth noting is Jesus' devout prayer life was so predictable, that's where Judas knows to find him. Um, so the other gospels talk about this being his usual custom when in Jerusalem. And uh, I'm gonna read this text. I'm actually gonna read it twice. I'm gonna read it once and we're gonna look at it with related, regards to Jesus. And then at the end, we're gonna read through it again with a mind to uh, the friends of Christ, Peter, James, and John. Okay, Uh, Mark 14, verse 32. It says, And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further... He fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Okay, I want to share with you a few things that I find striking, just things that catch me. 
in the reading, the first one is the humanness of Jesus. I'm struck by the humanness of Jesus. I don't think there's any other place in the whole Bible where our Lord is shown as being so human. And I'll admit, somehow it's a little bit uncomfortable inside of me when I, when I see this. I might even say kind of like gloriously problematic. I like it, but it, it challenges me on the inside because I think there's some part of me that wants to think that Jesus is really God in a human disguise, like God in a man suit. And, uh, you know, he's God, but he looks human. I, I wonder if that tiny little heresy always seems to sort of travel in me. This is not that. Jesus is a man. Now, I'm not, I'm not at all denying his divinity. I'm just saying he's fully man. This is, he is a man in very deep anguish and turmoil here. You, you can see what even feels just like the limited humanness in it. And it, it causes me to reflect that, uh, I, I just want to say this, for those of you who may be in a place of similar trial or just a low place, peaks and valleys, right? For those of you who might be in a valley, uh, our God can identify with human anguish. All human anguish. You have not felt what he has not experienced. Uh, perhaps better than any human, he knows. He knows. As a human, he knows. That's the first thing I find striking. The second thing I find striking in this account is the loneliness of Jesus. It's a lonely account, a human lonely. You know, a few days ago, there was a big crowd around him, and then earlier this evening, there were 12 at the dinner table, and then there were 11. And then they go pray, and he comes with three and says, stay here, and he goes about a stone's throw away, and uh, so it's not so much that he's entirely alone bodily. I know his friends are close by, but he is alone in his problem. It's not that he's alone, it's that he's lonely in his problem. No one seems to be able to understand what he's going through. I feel like that's, the, that's what the sleeping companions seem to highlight, is obviously they don't know what Jesus is going through, if they did, they wouldn't fall asleep. I think they, how could you sleep if you, knew what, if you knew what was about to happen? There's no way you could fall asleep. They don't get what it's about. I feel like they're in the garden with him, but he's alone in the problem. And I do think, as I reflect, you know, have reflected on this, there's something that's theologically helpful here. Um, what Jesus is called to do, only he can do. Only he can do. No one can help Jesus here. No one can help him here. In fact, everyone, everyone, not just his disciples, but everyone is actually in need of help. And I'm just saying this because in the land of to whom does the credit go for our hope of salvation? Only Jesus. You and I cannot help him in this. He's alone in it. Because we're, we're the ones in need. 
Here's the third thing I find striking. Is that throughout this whole account, Jesus remains a shepherd throughout. He never stops shepherding. And, and by the way, if you read the, uh, the whole passion of our Lord, he never stops shepherding until he gives up his breath. But um, here, you know, I, th- I think sometimes reading it quickly get, make, gives us the assumption that he says to Peter, James, and John, hey, rise, pray, pray for me. I could really use your prayers. I'm in a tough spot. That's not what Jesus says here. Jesus does not use, this is how he even highlights his aloneness. He does not use the disciples for him. He actually says to Peter, rise and pray that you don't fall into temptation. So in the space where our Lord is taking the world on his shoulders, he still is caring for the disciples. It's a way of saying, you know, it's almost as though Jesus is saying to Peter, when I'm taken, it's about to get very hard for you. Your world's about to get very hard. You need to pray for yourself. You know, when I have a lot of, when I have a heavy heart or when a lot on my shoulders or I feel like the, you know, the weight of the world's on my shoulders and I'm not trying to compare myself to the Lord, I'm just uh, affiliating myself with you. We have that feeling. I find I typically get more and more self-focused. Someone comes to me with their problem, which seems so small to me, and I lose charity with it. You know, I, I got the weight of the world on my shoulders. Is my internal attitude you know, here? Like Jesus, spiritually, does have the weight of the world on his shoulders, and he still is instructing Peter for Peter's good. These things that I, I was struck by, they kind of lead me to wonder this. I wonder what's the actual nature of the anguish of, of Christ. And this is where I, I, don't think, I don't think I can explain it. I don't think I understand it entirely. What is the real nature of the hour of our Lord or the cup that he's passing? I mean, certainly, certainly I would say it, we could start with Jesus is disturbed and in turmoil about the fact that he's about to be betrayed, arrested, beat, mocked, and crucified. Right, that's enough, that's enough trouble. <laughs> I think we all would agree with that. But I, 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 wonder, I wonder if it is more than that or in addition to that. I wonder if there are other ways to think about what Jesus is wrestling through. And I'll say it this way. <clears throat> The righteous death of our Lord, the man Jesus, is going to serve as a substitute for your death and my death. That's what's happening at the crucifixion. His death is serving as a righteous substitute for the the consequences of our sin. Let me just say it that way, right? The consequences of our sin, uh, whatever is supposed to meet us when we die, somehow, right, 
you and I, those of us who trust in the Lord, we stare through death with hope that we pass through death and into the fellowship with the Lord because Jesus has substituted himself for us. And I have, that's the limit of what I feel like I know. You know, what exactly is our Lord, what did he experience in the death on the cross, in the spiritual realm? I don't, I don't know, but I do know this. The righteous wrath that I deserve, I will not receive because he is a righteous substitute. And he knows this. The psalm this week was Psalm 79, which is a psalm that is sung out of judgment. The people of Israel are being judged for their wickedness. And so I don't know if the psalm is coming out of when Babylon was destroying Jerusalem. I don't know. It seems kind of like that sort of time frame. The temp- it seems like the temple and the city are being torn down. The blood of the saints is, are being spilled. It's just a really, really difficult time. And in, in the psalmist is, is crying to the Lord in the midst of it. And, and the psalmist knows this judgment is happening because of their sin. It's righteous wrath because of their iniquity. And so, and the psalmist cries to the Lord in a verse in Psalm 79, and he says this to God. He says, help me, help us. And then he says this, deliver us and atone for our sins for your namesake. Can you believe the gall of the psalmist to say to God, God, I need you to say, I need you to deliver me by you atoning for my sin. You atoning for my sin. This is that moment. That psalm could have been written out of Gethsemane. Maybe I'll say it one other way. Uh, You and I, to be made in the image of God means we are eternal beings. We are eternal. Our soul lives on. And to die outside of the fellowship of God is an awful thing. That's what the word describes it. It's an awful, terrible, eternal reality to head into eternity apart from the fellowship of God. And what I wonder when I look at Gethsemane is a righteous son who has spent eternity in fellowship with God, who's about to forfeit it for our sake. Right, what you and I are only now getting an inkling of, like for us, yeah, glory in heaven is so much better, right? I mean, it's better than what we can appreciate. We sort of dream into that. That is what for ages and generations since time began, Jesus has known and experienced with the Father and he's about to lay that down so that you and I can have it. This phrase, like he cries out, Abba, which is such a, 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 an affectionate way of talking to the Lord. You just realize it's a son talking to his father. He says, man, I do not want to do this, but I want to do your will more. 
I don't want to do this, but I want to do your will most of all. I asked someone this week, I said, can you think of another time where uh, Jesus appears very, very human? What other points in scripture does Jesus really show up as feeling human? And um, I had a place in my mind, what was interesting is, is he, said, he said the exact place I was thinking, and then later on I read a book and they said the same thing. I'm like, man, that's crazy. Uh, I was thinking of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And, he, and this person said, yeah, the only other thing I can think of is when Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness. And then he said the exact thing that I was thinking, which is, yeah, but in the wilderness, it seems like a different kind of Jesus. It doesn't seem like a deeply, heavily burdened Jesus, dreading what's going to happen next. It seems he's a triumphant Superman kind of Jesus. You know, all of the temptations that I fail at, he passes with flying colors. The Jesus of the wilderness is like this supreme being in difficult circumstance, not a beleaguered being. And, and I've been thinking, what's the difference? And I do think this, this might be uh, part of the difference. In the wilderness, Jesus has the Lord. It, and it seems like his strength comes from that. Satan says, hey, I know you're hungry. Why don't you turn these rocks into bread? Jesus says, man doesn't live by bread alone, but every word that comes out of the mouth of the Father. He's like, I don't need to eat. I have my Father. Satan says, why don't you jump down and see if an uh, angel, if you're such a big hot shot, jump off this cliff and let's see if angels catch you. He says, no. The Lord says not to put him to the test. Like, I have my Father. I don't need to do that. Satan says, hey, instead of going through any hardship, how about you kneel to me and I'll give you all this awesome stuff? He says, no, no, no. My, my father says, uh, love him and worship him only. He can sail through the wilderness because he has the father. In the garden, he's about to lose that. It's like he can do anything with the father. Now he's being asked, right? Their fellowship is gonna be torn asunder. I wonder if that is the anguish. Okay, I want to read this one more time through, this time with our, uh, the friends of Jesus in mind. So let me read here. Verse 32, And they went to the place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, so as I read, just pay attention to the disciples. He says to them, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. 
and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So very briefly, I just want to share with you what I'm, what I'm struck by here. Uh, we, we know people pretty well, so I think that this will be familiar. I'm struck by how, how they seem unaware of the hour of Jesus. I'm struck by how unaware they are. Like Jesus has told them, it's necessary for the Son of Man to be handed over, arrested, crucified. I mean, he's told them these things. Three times already in the Gospel of Mark. There's three accounts in the latter book of the Gospel of Mark where they've been told that Jesus, but yet they seem so unaware. They seem so unaware of or disconnected from his feelings or they seem blind to it. And, uh, you know, as always, it's, it's an easy exercise to be judgmental of the disciples. <laughs> Which, by the way, I've thought just to be, to be in Jesus' inner circle, what it really means is you're constantly caught on camera. That's what I've decided is. I used to sort of be jealous of like, well, how come Peter, James, and John get to be Jesus' favorites? And now I'm like, I would choose Bartholomew any day of the week just to stay off camera, right? So everywhere, we just get to see the mistakes that Peter, James, and John constantly make. And here, they're, they're so unaware, and there's some part of me that is, like, how can you be this unaware? But then I, you know, I have this little shepherding rule in my heart, which is you're really no different. Stop thinking of yourself differently. Like, when judgmentalism rises up in me, I try to arrest it with, you are not different. And I find myself asking this, how often do I live in a way where God might look down and say, it's as though he's totally unaware of what I'm trying to do. He's living as though he's totally unaware of his purpose. I mean, I wonder, just for us, how how often that might be able to be said in our direction. Here's another thing that I'm struck by. I'm struck by their, their faithless frailty. They can't stay awake. Just, they just, the power of the night seems to override their uh, affection or care for their master. And again, I want to get all judgmental and then I remind myself I'm the same way. And I have to think, how often do I exhibit this sort of frail attention span of uh, these, of Peter, James, and John? How often uh, do we find ourselves tired out? Too tired for the Lord. Too tired for the Lord. You know, New Year's resolution, I'm going to get up, I'm going to pray on my knees each morning before the, you know, before I hear the rooster crow. Uh, That lasts like until January 3rd, you know. Uh, Every year it lasts for me about January 3rd. We're frail. 
there, the mere humanity of the companions of Jesus we see here is in a way our everyday experience. And I'm not saying we're this bad every day, but I'm just saying our everyday touches on these things. We're just not that different. Which leads me to wonder this. So I was, I was sort of imagining, I was imagining uh, being the disciples and letting my Lord down like this. And I wondered what their next night was like. Friday night. I thought, I bet you they didn't sleep at all on Friday. I bet you they lied in bed, eyes wide open at the ceiling, going, what have I done? I slept on them. I denied them. I ran away. Like, I wonder what Friday night felt like for these guys. And then I felt all bad for him. But then I realized the rest of the city is sleeping just fine. Right? The rest of Jerusalem is watching Netflix and snoozing. And this is where it came to me. It sort of came to me that um, I, I know their Friday night was rough, right? Their Friday night was rough or... they have this feeling of having let the Lord down. You know why? Because they're the friends of God. That's a, that's a sign of their friendship. That made me feel so much better. Because, you know, as a Christian, there's these times where you, you have let the Lord down, and you're like, Lord, how was I this unaware? How was I this unaware? And you, and you feel bad? You know those times you feel bad? You know what that is? That's a sign that you're a friend of Jesus. It's a sign. The rest of the city's sleeping just fine that night. There's a sense of, we, we hurt when we let people down that we love. And so if you, I just want to end on this note, if you are in a place where, you know, you, you strive and then you're frail or you don't, you're unaware or you're not meeting in your, in your Lord, I'm letting you down again. Or, Lord, why can't I... That is a sign. Guess what it is? It's that you're in his inner circle. You are a friend of Jesus. The scriptures say, it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. It's his friendship in our direction that causes us to stay up going, what have I done? What have I done? Oh, he's such a good shepherd. Let's pray together. Lord, we put to you all the ways, Lord, we, in, in the light of the true gospel, we don't have to defend ourselves, make ourselves look good, uh, posture in a way that put our best side forward. Lord, we don't have to do any of that for you. We come to you as we are. We cry, deliver us. You, we need salvation and we need you to do the saving. And we know, Lord, that your son, the man, Jesus, has done it for us. For that we're so thankful. Father, we are eternal beings and through faith in Christ, we will not spend it apart from you.
So Lord, we pray you make us more faithful each day. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.